0: If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to the book of James. James chapter one we You've all seen it in television and in cartoons. There is a man that has a decision to make. It's a difficult decision. It's a moral decision. And on one side there is the angel encouraging him the right decision to make. You know the right thing to do, the angel says. And on his other shoulder is the demon, the devil, encouraging him not to do the right thing. Do what is best for you. And there is this conflict as he has this war on his shoulders. Who is he going to listen to? Is he going to do what is right or is he going to do what is fun, what is enjoyable? It's meant to be a comical sight. It's meant to be uh, funny to us. And yet the reality is that something similar And yet far more sinister takes place in our minds and our hearts every day. For every day we face the temptation to sin. The question we have to ask is how are we going to say no to that sin? How are we going to persevere through the temptation without giving in? Along those lines, do we even understand how temptation works? Do we understand the nature of temptation in such a way that it is easy for us to identify it, to see it? for what it is, and to escape. This is where we're headed this morning as we begin to wrap up this series on spiritual warfare. This morning, we want to understand both the nature of temptation as well as how we can defeat it. And to do that, we look to James chapter 1. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 12. James says, "'Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial.'" May God bless the reading of his word. Again, from these verses, we see the very nature of temptation. But in doing so, we are given hints. We are giving uh, implied application, not only to understand temptation, but how to defeat it in our lives. And this is what we want to see this morning. First, we begin by noting the source of temptation. The source of temptation. Where does it come from? Where does temptation come from? Where does sin come from? Proverbs 19 says, When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Isn't that true? Uh, The Bible is so full of examples of people shifting blame from themselves to others because of their sin. But it is one of the most common and persistent blame shifts, even to this day, to blame God for our moral failures. One retired pastor named Kent Hughes tells the story of a troubled young woman who was gloriously saved, but whose husband did not follow suit. And after a year of marital strife, she began meeting with a Christian counselor. Yet rather than receiving help, she was preyed upon by a wolf in professional sheep's clothing. It began with listening and sympathy. It began with, it continued on with compliments on her appearance, as it were, to build her self-esteem. And yet it continued as she showed up for one session, dressed and scented as for a first date. Everything ended with guilt from the multiple liaisons that followed. And now as this young woman sits with Pastor Hughes and his wife, this woman is bitter and full of rage. And she places all of the blame for what happened on her on one person. God. I asked for God to lead me to the right person, she said, and he led me to this man. It's God's fault. He is to blame for what happened. Do you know anybody who has felt that way? Perhaps you have felt that way sitting here today. But James tells us those are just feelings, not reality. He throws a cold bucket of reality on our face when he says in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Why? For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Therefore we can say with utter confidence that God is sinless. God is sinless. Later, in verse 17, James says that God is the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. It's the imagery of the constellations at night continually shifting and moving according to the seasons of the year. Yet in the midst of that, James says there is God. He never changes. He never turns. He never shifts in His plan or His character. He is the one constant in the universe that gives us hope and provides an anchor for our souls. Thus, though, He may allow us and even lead us into the testing of our faith, as James says in verse 12, that it might be proven and refined, James insists that God is not seeking to tempt us. God is incapable of being tempted to sin, and therefore will tempt no one else to sin as well. And this is the consistent message that we see throughout the Scriptures. John says, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Habakkuk says of God, your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. So if we want to overcome and persevere through temptation, we must at the outset put out of our minds all the shifting of blame, especially towards God. Him and His sovereign reign can never be the excuse for our sin. So where does temptation come from? What is its it source? James says it comes from us. He says, We are the source of temptation. Therefore, while we can affirm that God is sinless, we must also affirm that humanity is sinful. Humanity is sinful. James says it's our own heart that is the source of temptation. Several weeks ago, Doug began our series on spiritual warfare from Ephesians 6 by identifying our mortal enemy, Satan himself. But it's important that we understand that having that kind of an enemy does not absolve us of moral responsibility for our sins notice james says that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire the, the devil may come at us he may tempt us to sin but that temptation ultimately arises from within our hearts this is saying, if we engage the temptation and it has its full effect and we sin it is because we have let it happen This is the reality of the human heart. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's not just the heart of Jeremiah. That's not just the heart of Israelites. It is the heart of humanity. It is the reality of the condition of every person for all time. We have wicked, sinful hearts. We love sin. We don't fear God. The result is that we do what we want, when we want, how we want We don't struggle with bad habits. We aren't a victim of addictions. We have sinful hearts. Our very being is corrupt. Therefore, we are the source of our temptations. And if we cannot come to terms with that reality, we will never be able to successfully fight against it. We will never be able to see sin lying dead at our feet if we cannot first come to grips with the fact that sin springs forth from our own heart, not just from influences from the outside. But what exactly is a temptation? What does it look like? How does it work? This is the next thing that James shows us, the nature of temptation. The nature of temptation. In verses 14 through 15, James lays out for us what is more or less the process by which we are led from faithful Christian living, glorifying our Creator and Savior, to experiencing the rebellion of sin as we give into temptation. We should probably say at some point here that it is not a sin to be tempted. Temptation is not the sin, but when we give into temptation, invariably leads to sin. And that is exactly what James will show us here. Five steps that lead to death from sin. We want to unpack all these things and understand them so that we will know how temptation works. And if we know how temptation works, we will be able to stop it from having its full effect in our lives. Listen again, verses 14 through 15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed By his own desire. Then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin. And sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Notice first there is deception. There is deception. James says temptation begins when we are lured away. Luring away involves the mind. And this happens because of the deceit of sin. You see your mind is meant to be the sentinel of your soul, of your life. It is meant to be carefully watching over, uh, how you, how you, uh, live and, and how you love by questioning, by assessing, by making judgments of the world around us. The mind is supposed to ask questions like, is this pleasing to God? Is this the way that He would have us to live? Is this His will for us? But what happens when the mind is deceived? When what God says is wrong, The mind believes is right. Then we have the beginnings of temptation. In fact, this is why Satan works so hard at deceit. Imagine trying to, in medieval times, take the castle of a rival king, or perhaps in more modern times, uh, uh, the base of a foreign army. What would your strategy be? What would your fundamental approach be? The hardest way would just be a direct frontal assault. Just line the armies up and start marching toward the enemy. That would be the hardest thing because all of the guards, all of the watchmen would see you coming and they would put all of the enemy forces on high alert and they would be ready to engage in the battle. But if you sneak up to the fortress at night with your best archers or your most skilled snipers and begin picking off one by one the watchmen or the guards, then they can't warn the others. And you will easily breach the wall and carry the day. Likewise, sin uses deceit to knock out the watchman of the soul, namely the mind. Sin presents itself as something beautiful and appealing, but it's only deceiving you. It's only deceiving you. And if it does, if you are deceived by sin, then that leads to secondly, desire desire. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Enticing relates to our affections. You see, if the mind determines an action is right, then the affections, how we feel, how we love should fall in line and desire and long for and cling to what the mind has determined is good. Conversely, if the mind determines something is bad, if some act, some thought is wicked and sinful and contrary to what God wants for our lives, then that thing should be repulsive to us. It should be something that, in terms of our affections, we loathe and we hate. It should sicken us and be the last thing that we would want to pick up off the side of the road. That's how we're supposed to work as a united being. But what happens if the mind is deceived? What happens if it believes sin is good? Then we begin to desire that thing which God forbids. And that leads thirdly to a decision. A decision. James says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The idea of a desire conceiving sin comes in the will. It is the will that puts the soul into action, carrying out what the mind has said was good and now the affections are hungering for. In this case, it is the desire for sin that leads to a decision to sin. You actually come to the point where you say, the mind has said, okay, I I need this sinful thing. This, this pornographic magazine is going to be good for me. Therefore, I'm going to desire it. Therefore, I make the decision to pick it up and begin flipping through it. And that leads forth to disobedience. Disobedience. The desire conceived gives birth to sin. Sin appears in our actions, our words, and thoughts. Our life under God's direction is disrupted. Instead of honoring Him with our lives the way that we should, we now dishonor Him. And what is the result of that sin? It is death. Number five, it is death. This is the final consequence of sin. Whatever sin pretends to be, it will end in death. Our sinful hearts want us to believe that the consequences for playing around with sin will only be slight. We might not get as much blessing from God as we might otherwise. We might have a smaller mansion in heaven. But sin is like a giant wedding cake. It's been left to sit out for several weeks. And under the gloss and the glamour of the icing lies a giant molding pile of sugar. Once you bite into that, you will not like the taste in your mouth. In a far more sinister way, it is true with sin. It looks wonderful on the outside, but once we take and embrace, it only leads to death. It is not without good reason in biblical theology that John Owen has said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Because that's the result of sin, death. Holding that thought in our minds that the wages of sin is death is frankly one of the best first lines of defense when it comes against striving to not be taken in by the deceptions and the allurement of sin. To to know from the outset, sin leads to death that's how temptation works this is the process that unfolds in our hearts and our minds to produce sin but maybe it's a little bit abstract so what i would like to do is quickly look at an example of temptation in action and, and, and walk you through these steps so you can see in reality what it looks like specifically i want to look at the very first temptation humanity ever faced from genesis 3 where this truth of james is beautifully and tragically illustrated To get the context, I'm going to begin by reading parts of chapter 2. Moses writes, "...the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? serpent so begins by ask, asking, did God really say? He doesn't begin with an argument of some kind, but a question. More than that, it's a suggestion. The serpent is suggesting that Eve has the mental and spiritual capacity to stand above God's word and to judge it, to determine if his word is good and right and helpful. Notice also the deception as he downplays God's goodness and magnify his magnifies his strictness, even sneaking in an exaggeration. The serpent asks, did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's not what God said at all. We read that they could eat from any and every tree of the garden except for one. The serpent is focusing Eve's attention on the one thing that is forbidden. He wants God to seem like a giant killjoy, one who isn't good or generous or glorious. In her response... Eve actually ratchets up the negation. She adds, do not touch it. Do not eat of that tree and not even touch it lest you die. That's not what God said. For all we know, they could have played golf or basketball or baseball with the fruit. It didn't matter. They could manhandle it. They could touch it. They just couldn't eat it. But by making God's command stricter than it really was, she was already Buying into the deception and focusing on the negative and not the abundance of blessing that has been given to her by God. Aren't we the exact same? All the things that God has for us, all the things that he delights to let us do, and we always focus on the one thing that he has said is sin and we should not do, and we begin to crave that thing. What, whatever it is for you. The final act of the certain serpent's deception comes in the outright lie of, and contradiction of God. He tells Eve, You will not surely die. Why, why is this deception so important? Because if there's no judgment on anyone, if there's no consequences to our actions, then we can do whatever we want. We, we need not fear reprisal, we need not fear punishment. And Eve believes the deception. And having been deceived, she now begins to desire what God has forbidden. Verse 6, The woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. God has said, don't do this, it will bring about death. But she has been deceived into believing that that's not true. And now she begins to desire this thing. She sees it as physically appealing. It's good for food. It is aesthetically pleasing. It is beautiful to the eyes. And it is mentally transforming. It is able to make her wise. After evaluating the fruit in this way, she makes her own decision. It is good. She buys into the lie. She gives into her desires and now believes her own judgment rather than God deciding to take the fruit. As the conception of the sin gives birth to sin, she disobeys. Moses writes, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave also some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why did they hide? Because they realized the serpent had lied. That they had indeed sinned and now just as God said they were going to experience death. Later in the chapter, God curses them, the serpent and the creation itself, and death begins to spread along with sin. And this death isn't just for her. It's also for Adam, who also abdicated his responsibility of protecting his wife and followed her in sin. But it's also for us. For Adam was not just the first man. He was the representative head of the entire human race. And therefore, the death that came to him, the corruption that came to him from his sin, comes to us as well. A few weeks ago, I believe it was in Sunday school, I said, if it's hard to wrap our minds around that, just think about a team sport. Any team sport, if someone, uh, breaks the rules, if someone commits a foul, that person is punished, but it also damages the whole team. Perhaps they're, they're down a man. They don't have a full team, or if they're best player and now he's removed, perhaps they lose yardage or time off the clock or whatever. The whole team is affected by the actions of one player. And so it is for humanity. Our representative head, our father, sinned, and therefore we all suffer the consequences therefore this temptation is no mere example it is the very cause of the death sentence that has been passed on all humanity even to us as paul will say later in romans 4 and 5 sin came into the world through one man and death through sin in adam all die. All of us die. All humanity is now born corrupted by sin and justly condemned because of it. This is why we struggle with sin and temptation even today. We have a natural bent towards sin. So what do we do? Do we languish and live in defeat, trying to slog it out the best that we can? Is it possible to even deal with temptation, to resist it? Is it possible to say no to sin, or is it the inevitable result of every temptation that we encounter? This leads us to the last point we want to see this morning, namely the defeat of sin. The defeat of sin. On one level, sin has already been dealt with. For even amidst this first sin in Genesis 3, there is good news. God promises that Satan and sin and death will one day be stopped, that the curse will be reversed. One of the things that I find incredibly frustrating, this is a bit of an aside, but you'll get the point. One of the things I find incredibly frustrating is that some of our most profound hymns that we sing have been dedicated Christmas hymns. So we we'll only sing them one time a year. But have you ever have you ever listened to the words of "Joy to the World"? The, the 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 whole point is that is that now this conquering King, the King who will put death to death, that will put sin away forever, who will defeat the devil and will will no, cause creation no more to be infested with thorns and thistles, but will lead victory as far as the curse is found. It's all right here from Genesis three. But we only sing it at Christmas. Why is that? I don't know. Maybe we'll put it to a different tune and sing it again. But the whole point is, right here, even at the fall of humanity, the downfall of creation itself, Genesis 3.15, God gives the first promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Son will come, and He will vanquish the serpent. The serpent will strike at His heel, but the Son will crush His head. And that victory has already been won through his death and resurrection, through the cross and the empty tomb. Jesus has fulfilled the very promise of grace that God has given. That though Adam, the first man, has ruined everything, a second Adam, a new man, will come and he will repair everything. And so Paul will say in Romans 5 again, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. By faith in Christ God considers now our sins punished and our death died. The, the, the judgment, the consequences that we had coming to us have fallen on God's own Son. And so when we trust Christ to be our Savior, we need no longer fear an eternal consequence for our sin. In Christ, the war is won. And yet until His return, we still daily fight the battle against sin. And here for the Christian is sin's ultimate deception. That we need not bother with it. That we need not bother with it. That sin doesn't really matter anymore. After all, Christ is won, we're going to heaven. Why worry about sin? was just listening on the, on the way in today. A man giving a talk on, pu- pa- on instructions on pastors how to up their game on public prayer. And it was interesting that this guy was saying that in their church someone came after months and months and said, why, oh why, do we pray prayers of confession and repentance when we are free in Christ? And I fear... That that mindset permeates much of evangelical Christianity. Why do we even worry about sin when we have been forgiven? Why do we take it so seriously? Well, at least two reasons. First of all, because Hebrews tells us that we must strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That is not Christ's imputed holiness. That is not the righteousness that is considered ours. This is our holiness does does that mean that we're saved by works no we are saved by faith in christ alone apart from anything that we do however if we have been truly saved then it will be evident by the fruit of holiness in our life so so someone who is a hell raiser a a rabble rouser their entire life and, and and when we confront them and say you should not be living this way well i said a prayer when i was five so what? You said some words. Where is the fruit of righteousness in your life? Where is the evidence of transformation? Do not, do not bank your assurance on a prayer that was said when you were a child. There is to be a living faith that springs forth from us as God's people. We should be striving for holiness because our heavenly Father is holy and we desire to be like Him. least the second point as God's people why would we ever want to live contrary to his ways we want to say no to temptation and live without sin as much as possible in this life and yet when we do come God is willing to allow the relationship the fellowship between us to be restored and renewed and deepened as we confess our sin and by his grace repent and turn away never to sin again this is why sin and temptation are still serious for the believer in fact it is more serious for us as christians than it is for for those outside the body of christ so what should we do how can we practically work to defeat and overcome temptation to kill sin in our lives three things first of all we should guard our minds guard your mind if the mind is the watchman of the city and the soul we want him to be well armed that goes back to what we saw last week in Romans 12, 1 and 2. In order to live transformed lives, we must have a transformed mind. The way that we think about God, the world, and sin, and how we should live needs to be corrected and changed by reading and meditating on God's word. Let me give you six practical things that you can do in an effort to guard your mind. Number one, remember and believe the promises of God in the scriptures. Remember and believe the promises of God in the Scriptures. Read and believe His promises of help and blessing to those who fear Him and love Him. Store them up in your mind memorize them so that in the moment of temptation, they are there. Can can, can you imagine firefighters rolling up to a blazing inferno only to find no water in the hydrants? Yeah, we forgot to fill them last week. Oh, well. I I don't think that would fly. Especially if it was my house, right? I've said before, can you imagine the Holy Spirit operating in our minds? in our lives he sees temptation coming he knows it is one to which we are especially vulnerable and he immediately springs into action he goes to throw open the armory of our soul to pull out some promise of god to put in our hands that we might wield it like a sword against sin what is he going to find Is he going to find an armory full of passages and verses and and chapters, maybe even whole books that we have committed to memory that he can pull out and begin equipping us to fight off temptation? Or is he going to find Genesis 1-1 and John 3-16? Words of God, but not necessarily very effective in the moment of temptation. What is the Spirit using? He doesn't just... You understand that the Spirit is God, but He does not just randomly put thoughts in your mind. He uses the Word of God, which you have already read and stored up in your mind, to fight off temptation. Therefore, Therefore, let us seek, not simply to master the Bible, but to be mastered by it. To fill our minds and hearts up with it, that we will be ready to have a sure defense against sin and temptation when it comes. Secondly, remember and believe that we have a righteous standing in Christ. Remember and believe that we have a righteous standing in Christ. This is fighting sin with the power of the gospel. And it comes on the front end as well as the back end of temptation. On the front end, we remember that our eternal standing with God isn't about what we do. It's about what Christ has already done. So we're not striving for holiness in order to be made right with God. We've already been made right with God. But on the back end, when we have gone through temptation and we have failed and and it's given birth to sin in our life, the temptation there for us is to despair, to, to to be overcome with guilt thinking there's no way that God will ever forgive me and take me back. But the promise is already there. What we deserve has already been given to Christ. He has bore the wrath for us. Therefore, He stands as the sufficient Savior even for our current sins. Third, remember and believe that sin is no longer our master. Remember and believe that sin is no longer our master. Like a slave whose chains have been unshackled for the last time. Like a prisoner whose life sentence has been revoked and he steps out into freedom. Like a dead man walking out of a tomb with fresh air in his lungs and warm blood coursing through his veins. God has made us spiritually alive in Christ. And in part that means freedom from the bondage to sin. Sin no longer has any power over us because the very spirit of the living God resides within us. Paul gives us a promise in Galatians. If we will walk by that spirit, then we will not gratify the lusts of the flesh. We will not give in to temptation. Sin will not be birthed in our lives. So when temptation is steering you in the face. Sin is calling to you saying, you you know that you want me. You know that you can't resist. You can say back, yes, I can resist. Yes, I can say no because I am alive in Christ and you are no longer my master. Four, remember and believe that our life is hidden with God in Christ and not the things of this world. Remember and believe that our life is hidden with Christ, is hidden with God in Christ and not in the things of this world if we are part of God's people, then we belong to the new creation that He is bringing about. The chaotic, rebellious, self-centered mindset that pervades our culture is not who we are anymore. It's not where our identity is found. We're, we're, we're not just part of the culture in which we live and swim. So the Apostle Paul, command, or, uh, John commands us in 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride and possessions... It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is not saying do not enjoy God's good gifts in this world. It is not saying do not enjoy food and drink and family and marriage and recreation, but it is saying don't make those things ultimate things. Do not become so captivated and in love with those things that that is what you live for, that that is what determines your priorities, that that is the focus of your life. Many of those things will go away in the new creation. So why would we invest so much in them now? Remind yourself there is a higher throne, a more glorious future, a more perfect king to whom you owe an allegiance. Settle for nothing less. Fifth, remember to give and receive exhortations to godliness. Remember to give and receive exhortations to godliness. Killing sin and growing in holiness is a community project. You must surround yourself with people who will love you enough to help you see your sin and positively speak God's word into your life as an encouragement to godliness. This is not just saying, you should work on that, you should work on that, you should work on that. It's also saying, think about this promise that I read this morning. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that helpful to us as we seek to live in the day in which we, we live and find ourselves? Someone recently asked about, about serving in the church. And I said, yes, there, there are many places, but this is the most foundational way we are meant to serve one another, by speaking God's word into one another's lives. We live in obedience to passages like Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Finally, remember and meditate on the utter sinfulness of sin, the foolish repugnancy of rebellion against God. Remember and meditate on the utter sinfulness of sin, the foolish repugnancy of rebellion against God. The world will glamorize sin. Your friends will delight in sin. Your family will excuse sin. Do not buy the lie. Do not give in to the temptation. Remember what sin really is. Something so heinous, so vile and foul that it cost the death of God's own son and the spilling of his blood to wash it away. Those are six things Six things that you can do to guard your mind, the watchman of your soul. But in your fight against temptation and sin, don't stop there. Secondly, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Robert Murray McShane used to famously tell people, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Why should we do that? Well, number one, because it's easy to feel ashamed of the times that we fail. And again, we must remember, Christ is the superior Savior who died for all of our sins. But more than that, it is His glory, His captivating glory and soul-satisfying beauty that will draw our affections away from sin. So go again and again to the Bible seeking to gaze at that glory, the glory of Christ until it burns into our very souls. Do you remember when Moses beheld... Just the, the kind of passing goodness of God. And he came down and his face was beaming in radiance. And it freaked everyone out. And they said, you've got to put the veil on. You've got to put the veil on. And the only time that he could take the veil off is when he went into the tent of meeting to speak to God. Paul says, likewise, for we who behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When we continually look upon that beautiful face, we will also be changed. With unveiled face, we all are beholding the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image of one degree of glory to the other. Second Corinthians 3.18 Guard your affections, your loves, your desires. Guard your heart by going and looking and asking God to show you the superior beauty of Christ. Finally, perhaps the most practical of the practicals, Flee temptation. Flee from temptation. Run from it. This in part means knowing your own weakness. Although every temptation is common to man, it's not as if you're the only person who's ever struggled with this. There are some things that will tempt you more than they will tempt others. You need to know what those things are. And even though someone else may be at complete liberty and freedom to go and be with a certain group of people and watch certain films and read certain books and engage in certain activities, you've got to know, I can't do that. Because it will be a huge temptation for me that I will likely not prevail through. I will sin. So be aware of your weakness. And when you see temptation coming, run. Far too often, we are frankly stupid. We want to hang around a little bit. We want to see, how bad is it really going to be? I should be able to endure this. I'll be okay. We may even get really spiritual and say, I have freedom in Christ to do this. Iron Ice Cody was a Native American actor on television. He's the one who did the Keep America Beautiful campaign with the little tear that would come down his eyes. In Guidepost Magazine back in 1988, he repeated an old Indian legend that goes like this many years ago. Indian ewes would go away into solitude to prepare for manhood. And on one such occasion, a youth hiked into a beautiful valley with with, with, uh, trees that were green and flowers that were bright, and there he fasted. And on the third day of his fasting, he looked up at the surrounding mountains and he saw in the middle one tall, rugged peak capped with dazzling snow. And he said, I will go and test myself on that mountain." So he put on his buffalo hide shirt. He threw his blanket over his shoulders and set off to climb the peak. And when he reached the top, he stood at the very rim of the world. He could see forever and his heart swelled with pride. But then he began to hear a rustling at his feet and he looked down and he saw a snake. Before he can move, the snake began to speak. It said, I am about to die. It's too cold for me up here, and I am freezing. There is no food, and I am starving. Please put me under your shirt and take me down to the valley. The youth said, no. I I, I know you're kind. You are a rattlesnake. If I pick you up, you will bite me, and the bite will kill me. Not so, said the snake. I will treat you differently. If you do this for me, you will be special. I will not harm you. The youth resisted for a while. But this was a very persuasive snake with beautiful markings. And eventually the youth relented. He tucked it under his shirt and carried it down to the valley. There he laid it gently on the grass when suddenly, without warning, the snake coiled, rattled, leapt, and bit him on the leg. As the young man fell down, feeling already the venom coursing through his veins, he pleaded, but you promised. To which the snake replied, you knew what I was when you picked me up. You know what sin is. You know what temptation is. Why play with it? Why hang around? Why go to those same places with those same friends, engage in those same activities? You know what is coming. Run! Flee! Like the example of Joseph, if you have to, leaving all of your clothes behind, get up and run away from sin and temptation. I end with a final quote from John Owen, one that draws us back to the very heart and soul of our war against temptation and sin. Here's what he says. Set faith at work on Christ for the killing of your sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Live in this and you will die a conqueror. Yes, you will. Through the good providence of God, live to see your lust dead. At your feet. Father, it is in the name of Christ that we come, praying that this would be so true of us. God, that we would be so enamored with you, your wisdom, your power, your glory, that God, we would fight against our own sinful, wicked hearts. We would fight against the temptation that is thrown at us. We would find sin repugnant in you far more glorious. And yet, Father, we know that we will fail. In this life, before you finish our salvation by glorifying us, by supernaturally ridding our lives of sin, we will struggle. We will have to fight. And so, God, I pray that in the midst of that, we will not only remember where temptation comes from, what its nature is, and the practical ways that we can go, preparing ourselves and guarding ourselves. But God, more than anything, that we will put at the forefront of our minds and our hearts your own dear son, Jesus Christ. That as Owen says, we will remember it is his blood that is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. God, may may he be first in all that we do and think and say. That we might be free from sin and overcome temptation. That we ask these things not simply for the sake of our own souls, but for the sake of the glory of His name in our midst. Amen.